This is an ABC podcast. Hi, from David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone and welcome to part three of our series about time. The weird thing about time, one of the many weird things about time, is that on one hand, it provides us with about as unifying an experience as it's possible to have. All of us are in time. We have been since the day we were born. But on the other hand, we don't all experience time in the same way, which makes you wonder if time really is this regular universal phenomenon. Here's Sam Barron. Philosophers have always looked to the experience of time as a touchstone for understanding. Temporal passage in particular is supposed to tell us something about the nature of time itself. Time seems to pass, and so we conclude it really does. And yet, the experience of passage is notoriously difficult to pin down. Discussion is usually shrouded in metaphor. Time whooshes past us, we say. Time flies, or drags, or stops. As Shakespeare once put it, time devours. It's only recently that science has developed tools that enable us to get behind the metaphor. And this is important work. Since the early 20th century, evidence has been mounting that time doesn't pass at all. Instead, the future is laid out for us, like pearls on a string, or like the grain in a block of wood. In order to shed some light on how we experience time, I'm here with Professor Alex Holcomb from the University of Sydney. Alex is an expert in perceptual psychology and has spent much of his life studying the mechanisms by which we perceive time. Together, Alex and I will attempt to put perception under the microscope. As we'll see, all is not as it seems. Alex, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Sam. It's great to be here talking about such a fascinating topic with you. Now, Alex, philosophers claim that we experience the passage of time. And by that, they mean something over and above the experience of duration, of succession, and even of change. They mean something like a sense of movement as we're pulled into the future away from the past. The claim that we experience the passage of time in this sense is an empirical claim. And so it'd be nice to know if we really do experience the passage of time in the way that philosophers imagine. Alex, is it difficult to test the claims that philosophers have made? Uh, And if so, why do you think that might be? Yes, it's difficult to test this claim that uh, we actually experience passage or some kind of feeling of movement through time. So part of that, I think, is because it's very difficult to manipulate the movement through time, if that's what philosophers are referring to. We can do things like asking people to judge different levels of durations and see how people respond to that. We can manipulate the temporal order of things and see how people's reports of their experiences varies with that. But I have a hard time thinking how we can get a grip on manipulating, you know, which is uh, the secret to a lot of science, being able to manipulate something, how we can actually manipulate this idea of passage. Right. And, and manipulation is the key here, as you say, because we're trying to investigate this from a scientific perspective. So just tell me a little bit more about the sort of manipulation that you would ordinarily do in psychology and then we can think about how that might translate over into the philosophical case. Yeah, well, perhaps the percept or experience that's somewhat related to what we're talking about that's been investigated the most and with the most different sorts of uh, lines of attack is the experience of motion. So we know from you know physics, we've got this uh, definition that motion is change of position with time. We also know that our perception of motion is quite limited we don't 
experience, for example, the movement of an hour hand on a clock. And we also know that we can manipulate displays and get people to report that they're experiencing motion even when there isn't motion there. So because of the sort of vicissitudes and um, idiosyncrasies of how our brain processes motion, we can get a handle on it. We can get clues to how our brain is extracting the response that we then gives rise to our experience of motion. Whereas with something like passage, it's hard to know what to do to get started manipulating that to see where people might experience it versus not experience it. So is the idea almost that, you know, if you're trying to measure this notion of passage and passage is something that's supposed to be over and above motion and change, that when you come to sort of experimentally test something, motion's kind of in the way. It's sort of blocking you from testing something beyond that. Well, I'd say it's in the way in the sense that that's not clear what they're talking about that's beyond a lot of the things that we can manipulate. So if this passage concept is beyond the notion of temporal order, it's something more than just motion. They've Philosophers have staked out a position for which uh, these other things that we can manipulate, which in many sciences is is how we make any progress, they've put themselves in territory that's uh, hard to make progress on. Right. And I suppose one of the things that has come up in this discussion in, in philosophy is the idea that these experiences, they might not really even be there. They might be some kind of illusion. And there are a couple of different claims that are made along these lines. One claim is that it's a kind of perceptual illusion, this experience of the passage of time. And another claim that sometimes gets made is that it's a cognitive illusion. We'll come to the idea that it's a cognitive illusion in a second. Let's just focus in on the notion of a perceptual illusion. So can you tell me a little bit about what perceptual illusions are and uh, maybe give me a couple of examples? Well, the internet's been a great boon to uh, perceptual illusions. So I think everybody listening has probably seen these things where... um You'll see an image on the internet and Facebook or Twitter somewhere, and the caption will say, you won't believe it, but these two squares are exactly the same color. You know, there's a long history of these things in which we were able to get a lot of insight into how the brain processes the outside world to give us the experience of colors in the outside world, uh, motion, shape, on the basis of these sort of errors it makes where there's a strong discrepancy between what's physically in the outside world and what our experience is leading us to believe. In particular, we call them, we like to call them perceptual because they seem to be autonomously constructed by a part of our brain that isn't affected very much by what our beliefs are that we might learn in school. So um, when you see that caption of the illusion, it says these two squares are the same color, and then we cover up different bits of the image, we can then convince ourselves they are the same color. And yet we continue to have the perceptual experience that they're different colors. So there is a segregation in our brain between these parts that are doing the sensory processing and these higher level beliefs we are. So it's a perceptual illusion because it's constructed by this perceptual apparatus that's rather than our uh, beliefs that we acquire. So if we're thinking about the experience of the passage of time, and some philosophers think this is an illusion and, and part of the motivation for thinking it's an illusion has to do with sort of broad metaphysical views that people hold. For instance, there are metaphysical views that are incompatible with the idea that the experience of, of the passage of time is really locking onto something in reality. And so, you know, we have these people at 
deny that the experience is is genuinely picking up something that we take to be a feature of, of the external world. What would we do to try and test a claim like that? How would we work out whether our experience of the passage of time in particular is a kind of perceptual illusion? Yeah, well, in the tradition that I come from, which I think is representative of a lot of science, it does come down to being able to compare circumstances in which it does occur to when it doesn't occur. Now, the great thing about laboratory science and including much perception science is that you can manipulate it within a person. For example, with these illusions, I can change the background of these patches of gray. And uh, that's going to, in a lawful or regular consistent way, change what people report. Uh, but the difficulty with passage is that it's often said to be a sort of universal feature of our experience, that there aren't circumstances where we do experience passage versus don't experience passage. Instead, we're always experiencing it. And in, in that case, it's very difficult to make any progress on what the heck it is or what might be causing it when you don't have either observational data of when it does versus doesn't occur, nor do you have experimental data being able to change it. Right. And as I mentioned earlier, there is a distinction that some people draw here between the experience of uh, passage being a kind of perceptual illusion and it being a cognitive illusion. And we've seen some reasons to think that it's difficult to understand it as a perceptual illusion. It's difficult to test. We can't compare circumstances where it might be there versus circumstances where it might be not. And so there's this might lead us to think that it's a different kind of illusion. So a cognitive illusion is connected to, as I understand it, this notion of cognitive penetration. Can you give us a little bit of sense of what that means so we can unpack this idea of a cognitive illusion? You asked specifically about cognitive penetration. So cognitive penetration is the idea that our high-level beliefs, like things we might pick up in school or reading or something that people say to us or that we sort of get by osmosis by the way we use language, that these things that are at this kind of thinking or cognitive level can penetrate or affect our experience that we might normally associate with more low-level things that are directly connected to the outside world or tied more to the outside world. Now, as far as the kind of perceptual illusions that I like to study most of the time with, uh, for example, perceiving two colors is different or experiencing motion when there's actually no motion out there. The record in science is that there seems to be very little cognitive penetration. Um, that is, for those illusions, your beliefs don't affect them. But there may be other sorts of experiences that people claim to be having um, in which it really is their high-level beliefs that are causing them to think that they're having those experiences or maybe even causing them to actually have the, those experiences. So can you give us an example where uh, beliefs might be altering the way that someone sort of takes themselves to be having an experience? Well, it struck me a, a few years ago when my children were a bit younger um, in the context of pain where, you know, I'd notice that uh, if they thought they're about to experience pain, they would not only jump, but they, you know, they'd start crying. They'd seem to be completely convinced that, uh, you know, as soon as I touched them, if we were going to do something a little painful and maybe a medical context, getting a shot or something, that they really thought they were experiencing pain. So I think it, in various circumstances, one can confuse uh, what one believes should be happening with what one is actually experiencing. And so it's been speculated that with temporal passage too, 
that the way we talk about time uh, moving forward in time or that time is passing us by or that we're falling behind to others. We have all these kind of spatial metaphors that also involve motion that we might be just become so accustomed to talking about time or conceiving of time in this way that we start to confuse it with the way we actually experience time. So would the idea be in the case of passage that we've got some beliefs about the world already, maybe some you know preconceived notions about time and the, the way that time works, and then that somehow infects our experiences or infects our beliefs about our experiences, which leads us to make claims like, you know, time seems to rush by or, or flow or, or pull us into the future. Yeah. And I have a sense that the, our experience of time is sort of ambiguous, that it, we don't have as strong or as rich or as definite an experience of time as we do of some other things. So my experience of color, if you show me something red, I immediately think it's red. I'm you know, completely convinced it's red. There's no ambiguity I feel in my perceptual experience about whether it's red if I'm looking directly at it. Now, if we start to put things more in the edge of my vision, then my percept experience might become more ambiguous, more fuzzy. And I think that a lot of the things that we state about time and our experience are in this more fuzzy realm. And when it's in this more fuzzy realm, there can be much more influence in things we believe about the world, because we have this fuzzy experience that may not be very clear to us how to describe it, but we've got this equipment that comes from language or our beliefs that allow us to flesh it out and say, oh, well, that's like such and such. This is The Philosopher's Zone. You're listening to it on RN, and this is part three of our series about time, which we're running through September. Producer Sam Barron is talking with Alex Holcomb from the University of Sydney about how and why it's so difficult to pin down what it means to perceive or experience time. We've talked a bit about how the experience of temporal passage in particular might be influenced by our beliefs or it might be a kind of illusion. What I want to do is sort of zoom out a little bit. At the start, we talked about other aspects of our experience to do with time, things like duration and succession. And I suppose what I'm curious about is whether some of the things that we've said about passage might apply more generally to our temporal experience. So to get us thinking about time perception in general, it's useful to think about some experiments on things like duration and succession. So can you tell us a little bit about this, maybe about the flash lag effect to get us started? Sure. Well, everybody's familiar with phrases like the watched pot never boils, this phrase that we use in English to convey how when you're paying attention to something, the duration of it seems very long compared to cases where we're not paying close attention to the passage of time. And so we say that time flies when we're engaged in some kind of activity. And we think that the reason that time flies in that case, but seems to drag on in the case of waiting for something to boil, is because our experiences of duration are affected by how much we're monitoring time. And to me, an implication of that is that our experience of time is not as rich or as definite as experience of color and motion. 
And not only that, but it's strongly affected by what we're doing with our minds more than our experience of whether a tomato is red. And so because of that, I tend to think of the experience of time as not really being perceptual often in the same way that the perception of color, shape, or motion is. Instead, um, a lot of what we describe as our experience of time, like how long something took to happen, isn't coming from some kind of clock or similar collection of processes in our brain that we can read out. Instead, we use a variety of cues, like how many times did we think about the time How many events did we notice during that interval? If we're watching a pot boil or waiting for it to boil, we're sitting there noticing, oh, it still hasn't boiled, it still hasn't boiled, it still hasn't boiled. And we use that kind of judgment that we made in that circumstance to judge it as having taken longer than in another case where we're having a lot of fun, time is flying because we're not noticing the clock. So this is a difficulty, I think, with claims about the experience of time it's there's less there there in terms of experience or percepts i would say than in the case of other perceptual experiences so you say that we've got a sort of dedicated system for mapping spatial locations but uh we lack something similar for time or at least the the structures for time in our brains are not as well developed but then how is it that we manage to judge duration at all how do we manage to get it right if there's nothing or not as well-developed structures for mapping time? Sure. So there's a bunch of different ways it can be done. Now, of course, the simplest way, which inputs, I think, into our judgments in very limited cases, is to have like an explicit clock or oscillator, like in the old quartz crystals in your your watches, that's ticking away, marking out time at a regular pace. Now, we actually do have something like that. It's very clear for what we call circadian or over the entire day rhythms um, that help control, you know, when we feel sleepy, uh, when we wake up and all sorts of cycles, both in our brain and our body of hormones and so on. That's inside the suprachiasmatic nucleus inside our brain that actually has something like 20,000 cells that are ticking away. But the interesting thing is that we don't seem to have much access to that clock when you ask me, let's say, how long has this podcast been going? Or you ask me, how long have I been talking? I'm not able to read out anything from that clock to make that judgment. I don't, those parts of my brain that make judgments of duration like that don't have access to that clock. So how do we do it? It's not yet clear, but what we do know about the brain is that there's lots of oscillations that are happening for other reasons in the brain that are a bit like ticks of a clock. And certainly the brain is constantly evolving over time with all sorts of changes of activity, you know, as our neural networks are constantly, some neurons are active and others aren't. So one idea is that as we start to become more and more familiar with, oh, well, that's a five second interval, that's a one second interval, that's a longer interval, we're actually looking back at how much various states of our brain have changed in our memory over the interval that we're trying to judge. And so it's kind of like our brain has, it doesn't have very dedicated duration mechanisms, but has glommed on to the fact that our brains is changing state anyway and using that as a crude clock. Do you think that there's anything we get 
like really right about time in, in terms of our experience. So, you know, it seems like there are ways in which it goes wrong. We're not so good at judging duration, although maybe we can get better. We're not so good at really working out whether time is passing or not. But is there anything that we're actually good at? Yeah, well, we're, I don't want to, I mean, we're pretty good at, at judging intervals with, with a bit of uh, training. But yes, there are distortions we, we haven't even talked about. For example, uh, if you give someone a stimulant, then they'll tend to judge durations as being longer. And we think one reason for that is that, you know, when you give them a stimulant, there's a lot more things happening in their brain per unit time than when they're not under the influence of some kind of speed drug. Uh, and because our brain uses how many things have happened within itself to get an estimate of how much time has passed, giving someone a stimulant can make duration seem longer. But that doesn't affect certain aspects of uh, timing that we seem to, to excel at. And that again is actions. So there have been some beautiful experiments um, involving basically sports where uh, if you drop a ball from the ceiling and ask someone to try to hit it with a paddle as the ball is falling, first you need to let them get used to it, you know, hit the ball with the paddle a few times. Now we can calculate based on the velocity of the ball with what temporal precision the person's paddle needs to be at the ball's trajectory in order for the paddle to make contact with the ball so that the person actually hit the ball. And what can be done is to make the paddle thinner and thinner. And what's been found is that you can take people who aren't even sports people, untrained people, and you can make the paddle so thin that they had to get the paddle to the right location uh, within 20 milliseconds, I think, or maybe even better the number was, showing that people have exquisite temporal precision down to a few dozen thousands of a second when it comes to timing their actions. But that does seem to be controlled by a part of the brain, again, that we don't usually have good access to for making judgments of duration or maybe even temporal order. So that might be more of a cerebellum thing, um, which is more, somewhat autonomous to our general experience. So another thing that is a common assumption about experience and something that, that philosophers get quite interested in is the continuity of experience over time. So it seems like we have this seamless experience of the world through time, you know, ticking away moment by moment. But is it the case that our consciousness is really as unified and seamless as it seems to be? Or is there something more going on? Yeah, this is a difficult question because um, a big problem is knowing whether you would notice if uh, your experience wasn't very continuous. That is, let's say that your brain was only representing things as uh, stills or even space as individual chunks, discrete chunks like pixels. If that was the underlying machinery in your brain, even then you might have the experience of continuity just because you're not able to notice you know, the spaces between the pixels because you've got no machinery for that. So you can only notice what you've got processes that <laughs> can represent. And so it's hard to know how much of our mental experience is actually made up of, you could call atoms, uh, that we don't notice, notice the spaces in between because we've got no machinery to detect those. So it, it is a difficult question. We've talked a fair bit about how our experience of time is in some sense, a bit fragmented and how 
the way that we experience time might not correspond to the way that things really are in certain circumstances. At the very least, the experience of time and the perceptual psychology of time seems a lot more complicated than the perceptual psychology of space. I guess just to sort of draw things together, I want to ask a couple of questions. The first question is, why do you think it might be that the experience of time and the science of time is so different to something like space? And the other question is a sort of philosophical question. Where does that leave you, Alex, in your beliefs about time? Does it change the way that you think about time and reality? Um, well, I can answer in a narrow fashion about how the, in my, the history of my own field has led us to understand much more about space than about time. It was very easy going back hundreds of years to make displays and show them to people that had variation over space. We can draw things. They're called drawings. And when we started making uh, computer-based displays and started studying illusions, it was easy to present different pictures to people. And um, starting maybe most actively in the 1800s, people started studying lots of illusions that were basically spatial illusions because that was the easiest thing to do. We didn't, of course, invent movie technology, and certainly it wasn't widely dispersed until you know, fairly well into the 20th century. So you need, from my scientific tradition, where we're you know, varying things and asking people what they experience, if we want to vary time, uh, we weren't able to do that until very recently. And we didn't have uh, home personal computers that could easily be programmed until basically the 1980s. And so we've seen this rapid growth in the study of time, partly because of that. So it's hard to say how much of the views that I've expressed that the experience of time is um, somewhat lacking or more fuzzy than the experience of space and that there's less there there. Some of that could be due to the position of ignorance we are in historically, where we just have a longer history of studying our perceptions of space and spatial illusions than we do of temporal illusions. And where does it leave you in your beliefs about time in the world? Uh, well, I'm sympathetic now to, you know, theories of time that are maybe more exotic from the way we talk about time normally. So you didn't talk about how maybe the leading theories in physics are the sort of block universe idea that, that time isn't really passing, that there's nothing special about the present from, let's say, God's eye view. When I first heard those sorts of ideas, my kind of intuition rebelled. But because I'm sort of informed in perceptual experience for how much, and as a psychologist, for how often people say things that are wrong, even about themselves, even about their own experience, you know, that causes me to um, question my intuitions all the time and uh, not dismiss out of hand some weird theory that came out of quantum physics. Alex, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Sam. It's a great conversation. And Alex Holcomb is a professor in the School of Psychology at the University of Sydney. He was talking there with Sam Barron, and this has been the third episode in our Philosopher's Zone series about time. Next week, in the final instalment, Sam's going to be talking with a forensic entomologist about the ways in which the activity of insects on dead bodies can provide a kind of clock that helps in the solving of crimes. It's a field of inquiry that touches not just on the philosophy of time, but also on conceptual questions about science and the law. It's a really fascinating conversation, and I hope you can join us. I'm David Rutledge. Hope to see you next week in the Philosopher's Zone. Bye for now.